You're listening to The People's Podcast. I was honest. Was I brutally honest? Yes. But I think that that's the problem. Everybody's so scared to be honest with one another. This is JSC Radio. Because, of you know, you're often in that position just as a black person. We can all relate to that. Is that we often are forced in positions or asked to look um, and be more benevolent to people who really don't fuck with us. And we're, you know, it's it's been, especially particularly the conversations about race and racism, is that, you know, we are put in the awful position of having to be the peaceful ones, the benevolent ones. And when we're not that way, it's somehow a bad reflection of us and not on the racist, which is amazing to me. So they get a pass and they get to behave however they want and they get to be as racist as they want. Meanwhile, we got to sit there and just uh, take it or, um, you know, sit there and and use kindness to absolve them, which is crazy to me. You're listening to The People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hey now, my name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 100th episode of the People's Effing Podcast. This is JSC Radio. <laughs> hey now, I didn't think I'd get to 100 of these. So I know for damn sure a lot of you didn't think I would. This is a momentous occasion that, in all honesty, I'm really, really proud of it. And I'm also hilariously astonished that I got here. When I started doing this podcast back in March of 2016, I always envisioned getting to 100 episodes. I just didn't envision the road that it would take for me to get here. As I get started on this, as always, I want to shout out my man, Doc Illingsworth. He produces most of the soundtrack of this show. Shouting out Doc Illingsworth. And the amount of time that I've done this podcast, this dude has started a damn family. It's only been three years. Big up to my man, Doc Illingsworth, his new baby, his wife, and all the work he's done, including in the amount of time we've been on this show, he's also done a track for Fonte, little brother, Finally did an album for the first time in nine years that came out last week, and the shit is amazing. Shout out to my man, Awesome Jones, whose track that you hear to start most of our shows now. It's called Blue Chucks. Hit him up on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash awesome, O-S-S-I-M, Jones. You see his name on the actual cover for this episode of the podcast. I wanted to make sure I recognized him, too, because he shot me some music. He's a genuinely really good dude. And he's a he's a huge fan of the show. He's been with us. He's one of the day ones on this damn show, along with Illingsworth and so many other guys. Shout out to my man, Kari Hobbs. Big up to him and his little dude. Shout out to my man, Saran Dyer, Sean Uppercut. He also supports the show. He's got a little dude on the way. I'm about the only one who doesn't have any kids on the way out here. I want to big up, of course, everybody who follows me on the Twitter machine. You know it by now if you're listening. But it seems to be I'm going to have a lot of first timers coming in here. Thank you. Damn it, thank you. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at J. Scott Smith. That's J-A-Y-S-C-O, two T's, S-M-I-T-H. That's also my name on Instagram. 
Also, you can follow the show, whether it's on Instagram or on Twitter, at JSC Radio. Be sure to get at it there as well. You can also get at me on Facebook at Real J. Scott Smith. And, well, where do I even go from here? I mean, obviously, you're listening to this show on any of your favorite podcast providers, Apple Podcasts, iTunes. You're listening on SoundCloud or Stitcher. You're listening on the TuneIn app or CastBox or PodCoin. Or, of course, you're checking in Google Play. For those of you who still use Google Play, you're checking in on Google Play. You may be listening anywhere around the world, but, of course, you're listening on iHeartRadio. And you're listening on the only place to hear this guest on this show on Spotify. So I had a lot of ideas for what the hell I was going to do for episode 100. I actually had produced and put together this really cool kind of retrospective intro of some of, but I can't nearly squeeze in all of the best moments from the three and a half years and the hundred episodes and all the specials and everything else. I had all that plan to go as what will kick off this show and set this whole thing off. And then while I was in Miami at NABJ, which I mentioned I was going to be there during episode 99, I ran in to a really good friend of mine, Jamel Hill. If you recall back in episode 50, way the hell back in 2017, I talked about Jamel Hill. I've mentioned numerous times, she's a friend of mine. I don't just say that shit just for effect. Like, we really, like, are cool. So it's like her number is in my phone. I could text her. I don't because she's hella busy, but I could text her when need be. So we're down in Miami at NABJ, and we're hanging out in VIP. Yes, mild flex. We're hanging out at VIP in the NABJ Sports Task Force party, and we just get to talking, and I kind of half-jokingly mention, hey, I got this podcast, but I know you're crazy busy because she got her own podcast as well as writing for The Atlantic and doing a bunch of other things. So I would totally understand if she didn't have time to talk to a regular old ham and egger like me. And then she said, when would you like to do it? Yes, that silence is the is pretty much the think of the gif of that astonished gif of my man that you see a lot on Twitter. That was me. I was shocked because this woman has basically taken the media world by storm and she's got so many things happening hell she showed up on that new little brother album that just popped up last week she's had so many things going on that i would have zero issue if she told me to pound sand when i asked her to come on this podcast but she agreed so in lieu of what i would normally do when i have guests on the show and we have conversations because remember i don't do interviews we have conversations we're gonna get right to it And what I will tell you now, this was recorded on Skype for the first time. I was able to make this happen on Skype because of her schedule and some issues with equipment and everything else. My normal equipment wasn't fully available. Plus, I wanted to try something else on Skype. So she's going to be coming in loud and clear. Me, I'm going to sound like I'm sitting inside of a blender, inside of a closet, when actually we recorded this from Lincoln University, the new JSC radio studios, if you will. And I feel this is a hell of a conversation. She's amazing for doing this. And what you guys are about to hear is a little bit of everything. We previewed it, talked about it on social media, but now you get to hear it firsthand. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the 100th episode. Episode 100 
of JSC Radio. And I welcome in the one, the only, Detroit's own, Jamel Hill. It only makes sense that as we do episode 100, episode of SCN, I have probably one of the best people I know on here with me. And it's I consider it an honor to have a fellow Detroiter, a fellow Michigan State Spartan, a fellow alum of the Detroit Free Press Apprenticeship Program. She's currently, she's once worked for ESPN. She currently writes for The Atlantic. She's making cameo appearances on Little Brother albums. Ladies and gentlemen, the woman who invented the Nike swoosh, I, in, I intro Jamel Hill. Welcome, <laughs> JS uh, Radio. But- Thanks for having me. That's uh, quite an introduction. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's so it's so funny how all this kind of came together because I saw you in an ABJ in Miami as I talked about to talked about in the first half of this thing that I was in Miami for an ABJ and and there was a moment we're just sitting there. It's like all of us Detroit people are just kind of hanging out in VIP in Miami. And I'm thinking, what is this? What? Where? How did? How did, how did this happen? As I have you on here and. For one, how are you doing? Because you're you're busier than you're you're busier than most people would need to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, it is definitely a very busy time for me, but you know that's kind of the exciting part. Um, what's the phrase that the young folks use now? Booked and busy, or is it book blessed and busy? I think that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, this is a, a really exciting time for me in my personal and professional life. And so I think um, I'm just trying to manage, stay above water. But, um, you know, it, to me, even though there are days where I look at my schedule, my calendar, say, did somebody drunk fill this out? Because this, <laughs> there's no way I could possibly all, you know, done in the course. Of it. Uh, I somehow am able to get through it and, and make it work and, and more and most importantly um continue to do the kind of content and be involved in the kind of things that i think um are meaningful for me and um you know i'm not in that pay state or, or that stage in my career where i have to do things for checks so um that's a really liberating feeling so i'm able to be extremely choosy and thoughtful about the work that i do and the things i choose to be involved in how, how does it when you're when you think about like the stuff you do in a given day, like how is how is it that you're even able to kind of keep things coordinated? Because I know like what's a I, people ask what's a typical day for you, but ain't no day typical with what you do. <laughs> no, I mean I would if there was a typical day, then it would be a lot easier to manage. But on a day to day basis, it's like something pops up, and I'm living in LA now, and I've been out here since October. And the crazy thing about LA is everybody wants to meet and nobody wants to meet in their office. And so <laughs> um, I will, you know, today, for example, as of the taping of your podcast, um, uh, went to work out this morning, came back, got ready, had a meeting around 11 um, that lasted for about an hour and a half, had to um, come back home and do some things, had to shoot some emails, um, had to marinate some chicken. <laughs> <laughs> We will be talking about chicken a little bit later on here, too. Yeah, <laughs> that was today. I mean, yesterday, I mean, I had a, I had two meetings. Um, I had to 
get fit for my wedding dress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I had to squeeze that in there. And so, I mean, on a typical day, like it is in LA, that is, um, it is just very rare that I have a day without some kind of meeting with somebody to discuss some project or to, um, you know, just kind of uh, tie up some loose ends or, or whatever. So I'm in, I'm either listening to pitches or in pitch meetings all like constantly. So, um, it's a lot. And, um, the good thing is that there's a lot of people who want to work with me or a lot of people I want to work with who are very open to establishing that relationship. So even though there are days that it can get kind of draining and I wish I could like sit at home and not do anything (laughs) and, and, um, you know, just finish uh, watching Orange is the New Black. That's really not the reality for me. And oh, by the way, I'm also trying to write a memoir in between doing all these things. I I figured the book would be, and the book is going to be something else. And I, I've seen, I've watched you. Well, full disclosure here, the first time I heard Jamel's name was echoing through the halls of the Detroit Free Press in 1995 when I was my first year as an apprentice at the Free Press. Like your name carried weight way back then because everybody, everyone kind of knew you. You you were you were good for you were good for just everything you did back then. To see where you are now, and there's a book there, there's a movie there, there's a documentary there, well before all the stuff with ESPN and everything prior to it. I go, when we talk about like, because we both grew up in Detroit, both grew up in Detroit, our formative years in the 80s and early and 90s in Detroit, when you look at where you are now and you think about where we came from. How does the how how often does do you just kind of sit back and say, holy shit, this is that this is pretty dope, or or like kind of like living a sort of American dream of sorts? Um, the only time I even really reflect on it is frankly when somebody like you asked me because I don't really uh have I guess I don't really sit down and, and think about um, I'm not in reflection mode. I guess I'm still in grind mode. And um, maybe I thought about it a little bit, uh, you know, after I signed, or I should say the day that my book deal was announced um, publicly, because um, that was a, a deal that had kind of been in the works for months, or I had been going through the process of that for, you know, a few months. And so it finally happened. And it was just like, oh man, shit, this is real. Like <laughs> people are about to find out a lot of things about me that they didn't know. And just the um, accomplishment of, of being able to sign a book deal was was something big in itself because, you know, since I was a, a little kid, I, always, I wanted to write and I wanted to be an author. And so to see that actually come to fruition, to see, to, to experience it actually happening was pretty wild to me. And you know, when I, I guess when I do have a few moments to kind of reflect and think about all the things that have happened to me and the starting point to where I am now, I mean, it's a pretty remarkable journey and I'm blessed and grateful and very humble to have lived this experience. But at the same time, I think if you ask a lot of people who are perceived as being successful, they would all tell you the same thing is that they, as much as for people, uh, for people, uh, as much as people on the outside look at them as successful people, it doesn't always feel that way on the inside. Now, that's not to say that it feels the opposite, that you haven't achieved anything, but it does kind of feel as if you always feel like you're just kind of getting started or that you have so much more to do. And so because it always feels that way, I think you can miss those moments 
where you could just slow down and just kind of be grateful. I tried to work on it and try to have these moments of reflection, but I'll be, you know, completely blunt. I'm pretty shitty at that. So, <laughs> so with that being said, it's like, I don't, uh, I got I do have to get better in that. I think we all do. I think driven, successful, ambitious people must get better at being present. And, um, I don't, I've always struggled to do that. I'm always thinking ahead or, um, wondering what the next move is or whatever. And what happens is you don't get an opportunity to appreciate the journey itself. So I'm working on it, but as of today, uh, I can't say I'm any better at it than I was a few years ago. <laughs> it's the, uh, it's, it's the kind of the balancing act between staying ready. As I like to, I like to say, stay ready. You don't need to get ready if you, if you stay ready and kind of appreciating where you are. And it's, it's, it can be, I can see how that could be tricky. No, it can be really tricky. And then just add it, let's just add the component of just the general heightened sense of, of paranoia that you have if you're black. And the reality is that, there you, go. you know, I mean, the truth of the matter is like so many of us, we have seen examples, not even on our own professions, though we've seen plenty of, plenty of those too, where people have had their careers just derailed, snatched from them. Any anything can happen, you know. Um, and uh, and we know that w- regardless of how successful we may be, be it financially or be it in, in terms of platform or place of prominence, I mean that shit could be gone tomorrow. And so, um, you know, I kind of operate with that mentality. I mean, I, I think it's just the PS, uh, PTSD of being black, the PTSD of having been poor and black. So um, I, ch- I tend to not really spend a whole lot of time kind of um, in reflection mode. That's why I said, like, I'm still in grind mode. And um, I know that may, to people who are listening right now, they may, that may seem ridiculous. No, it, it, it makes... What makes me what it is. It makes total sense. It makes total sense to a lot of people because you almost have to be that way. Because in a lot of cases, that's how a lot of, especially... A lot of Detroiters, it's how we were raised. That yeah. I I mean, because you and I both from west side of Detroit. You went to Mumford, I went to Renaissance. We're like five minutes away from each other in terms of school. And in a lot of cases, we had the same kind of upbringing. My dad been retired from the Detroit Police Department for about 14, 15 years. He still works. He's almost 70 years old. He's like, I'm not, cap- I'm not capable of just sitting down. I want to be able to keep working because I feel like if something goes wrong, and he gets get stuck in that mindset. I, I work three jobs right now <laughs> because I'm, yeah. I'm constantly out here. We uh, It's something about being – Detroit does something to you, and I've tried to explain that to others before. But when you grow up there, especially when we did, this is the this is the kind of mentality we have. you got to be on it, and I don't think people have fully understood that. You've been such a great representative of – who we are as Detroiters. And I wanted to tell you, I've told you that before, and I say that to anybody who asks me, she's one of the best representations of who we are in Detroit. And in, in, yeah. in the aspect of we grind, like a, yeah. we grind like a sumbitch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's very important for me to showcase that representation because um, you know how it was when we were growing up. Like Detroit, you know, we never made the national news for anything good. And I think it was... Uh, so, Carrie, you know, having representing Detroit in the right way, I'm not the only person to do this, but I feel like it's it's always I've always felt like it, I was 
you know, responsible for doing that because, you know, when we were growing up, the two times you can count on Detroit making the national news um, were one was, um, of course, when they released, um, you know, the, the rank the cities of who had the, the, the highest number of murders. We were guaranteed to make it then. Yep. The other time where we made the news was Devil's Night. So it was one of those two, or I mean, it was both of those instances when Detroit usually made the news. I mean, people did not come to Detroit to do positive stories or to talk about how things were going. A lot of times things weren't going that well, but nevertheless, I think the entire country had this perception of not only what it was like in Detroit, but what comes out of Detroit. And so I, it was always important to me to show people um, what... Detroit was really about and that there are great things that come out of the city and there's a certain grind, as you said, and character and grit and toughness that we have um, that makes us um, unique to uh, how others were raised in different parts of, uh, of the country. And there's, you know, some relatability there with probably any urban city, but at the same time, there is some special stuff that is, uh, you know, that comes out of Detroit and, and, and that is made there. I mean, it always, it always, um, I used to get offended by it, but now I guess, um, you know, I, I don't really care anymore, but I was, I, it would tick me off when, you know, people would ask me where I was from and I say, oh, I'm from Detroit. And they say, you are like, they're so shocked <laughs> because they can't believe that somebody with some sense is coming out of Detroit. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of how we get down. You know what I'm saying? So um, I always considered it to be a, I wouldn't even call it a responsibility, but I considered it to be my obligation to show the rest of the, the country about what we were about. It's it, it's so interesting when you say that, because I've gotten the same thing. It's like, so wait, when you say you're from Detroit, you mean like the area? Like, no fam, like Rosedale Park, like the city. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I, I, I grew up like right off Schoolcraft, homie. Like I'm right there. <laughs> I, I'm from the city and they seem kind of astonished. And I don't think the last, because the last time I talked to you, at least when I was still working in Michigan, you were, because you were, um, I think you were Grand, Mar Grand Marshal at uh, MSU's homecoming and we're both Spartans. And that's the other thing. I remember it's like back in the day, it's like the biggest arguments I would see you get into on Twitter would be, would be with Michigan fans. It's like those are like the it's like pining for the good old days with some of that. But we're both Spartans. And I just saw it earlier as we're recording this, that the whole that MSU's been through enough. A lot of their own self-inflicted wounds with Nasser and everything else. And as a Spartan, that's the toughest part these days is that when I talk about MSU, it, it's like Nasser comes up. And how did this school, how did this happen in your school? And I know you've talked about this before and others, but when you see, like, when you think about your MSU experience, how do you contrast it with what's going on now? Because I don't make any excuses for what they're doing. I go right after my alma mater all the time about, or our alma mater all the time about that. How, how do you, like, how do you feel as a, as an alum when you see this, what's going on at MSU and this culture of silencing and all these shady, weird things surrounding NASA and at times the athletic department and the university? Well, like you, um, I wasn't going to make any excuses um, for the leadership at Michigan State and for the code of silence that you're referring to. What I didn't want to do is to um, get so caught up in my love for the university that 
it came at the expense of understanding that there are scores of women that went through a real tragedy and a real nightmare and who were violated, who Michigan State failed to protect. And that can never, my love for Michigan State cannot, you know, supersede that. And I remember when Penn State went through uh, all the things that they did when, uh, you know, with Jerry Sandusky. And I, re I just remember looking at the students and even hearing what some of the alums would say and just being kind of appalled. Oh, yeah. They were, yeah, that they were just so tone deaf. And I can tell you um, from firsthand knowledge, I went to, I, I was scheduled, it was just a, it was just a coincidence. I was scheduled to speak at Michigan State shortly after um, Nasser was sentenced. And I was very proud because the conversation uh, among the students, among faculty, administrators was about account accountability. Like they were pissed at MSU's leadership. And wanted um and, and they were just as disgusted and disillusioned as as people who didn't even go there were now that being said i also you know one of the messages i delivered while i was there is that certainly hold leadership accountable um you know um keep the victims uh in in prayer or in your thoughts and and do as much as you can from a support standpoint to make sure that they're supported, but also that the women you don't know who haven't come forward are supported. And that, um, you know, that if they're, uh, of course, I hope, we hope nothing like that ever happens again, but just creating the atmosphere so that can't happen again. And so, but the other part of my message was that, look, Larry Nasser deserves to burn in hell a few times, but Larry Nasser is not going to make me feel ashamed about going to Michigan State. And, I'm not going to give him that power to make me look at my degree any differently because the reality is that I had some of the best times in my life at Michigan State. I met some of my best friends. I grew into um, a competent adult at Michigan State. Um, I learned to critically think at Michigan State. A lot mm -hmm. of great things in my life happened as a result of me going to Michigan State. And so I'm not going to be embarrassed about that um, and let, let Larry Nasser take those memories and um, take that experience from me, and they shouldn't either. The way you combat or reconcile what happened, again, is to really take the responsibility seriously that something like that can never happen again. You, you learned, you show a lot of resolve. And just the time I've known you and everything I see from you, it takes a lot of resolve to put up with a lot of the shit you deal with online a lot. I'm sure that I'm, I, I can't imagine this. And now that I, I've got you here, I can, I can honestly ask you this back when I did episode 50, it was talking about stick to sports and it was right around the time of the whole blow up with Trump and everything else. And I have to, I, 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 I would love to know what was that like for you? Because you're, you, you have, you handled that so much better than a lot of people would have. And I remember seeing the outpouring of support. Of course, I was one of the people, it's a big outpouring of support. For you, what was that like being at the center of that, being, at, I would say, like the eye of that hurricane when all this kind of really came together? Well, I, I mean, I, I think the, the worst part of it was not that the president thought I should be fired. <laughs> um, that, I mean, or that the White House, that was just their general position between him and, and Sarah Huckabee Sanders, like that. That really, I didn't really care. I mean, personally, but 
Um, if anything, I was just truly amused um, because given the scope of what a president has to do and think about the fact that he would give a shit about what somebody on at ESPN said is like, that just speaks to his level of narcissism. So um, beyond that part of it, I think the tough part was seeing how my situation impacted everything else around me and everyone else around me. And overnight, it just kind of changed just the perception of who I was. And, um, you know, I mean, it changed a lot of things in my life, you know, where uh, some of which have been good things. I mean, to be perfectly honest, but what I didn't like was some of the collateral damage that happened as a result. I mean, we were in the process of, you know, as you know, we, you know, I was hosting the six o'clock sports center then, and we were having, um, a lot of, uh, internal issues because we were trying to get the show in a good place and get it right and figure out what our sweet spot was. We had only had the position. I mean, we had gotten it in February, 2017. I mean, when this Trump thing happens, that was October. So we're talking about a span of six to eight months. And so there's barely any time for us to kind of really get into a groove. And then this happens and um, it not only impacts how our show is seen, it impacts what people say about it. It impacted what people said about Mike and I as a partnership. It impacted, you know, um, really just like everything. And for him to have to be put in the position to man the show without me when I got suspended um, eventually and just have to answer questions about me and all of my colleagues are suddenly, you know, they're getting blown up and people want to know what was going on. It just, it was just a lot of collateral damage. And, you know, my mom having to see not just the president, like, you know, criticize me, but I was a, a talking point and a topic for a lot of shows. And uh, I was a walking think piece. And, <laughs> um, you know, like, um, while, again, I, I can... I can retreat inside of my bubble, the bubble of myself and be okay. And, but for everybody else, I think it was much harder to do that. So, um, so yeah, I mean, that was sort of, I was just kind of dealing with the aftermath and the, just the, um, the, the momentous, um, you know, just, just how it became such a moment um, uh, in media history. (laughs) Honestly, it was just like, (laughs) This is not something that uh, had ever happened before in this way. And so, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, it was new things in my in my uh, life that were realities of, you know, the first time I made a public appearance after uh, I was suspended. I had to have. How was that? Yeah. I mean, I had to make I had I had security. I was, you know, bringing it full circle. I was. Uh, at the Lions Giants game in New York, <laughs> so uh, <laughs> and uh, it was something that had you know we had planned for a while because my fiance is a huge Lions fan, and um, you know me, him, and his father and another friend of mine, we had all planned on this outing, and so you know to have to have security there. Um, I, I mean, I you know I had a relationship with his dad, but I, I wouldn't blame his dad if you were thinking like what are you getting yourself into with somebody who needs security? (laughs) So yeah, it just, I kind of, while I was on TV every day and of course I was used to people recognizing me and that wasn't necessarily a problem, but now they were recognizing me for something different. So 
I sort of went through this anxiety of, okay, is this person who's staring at me, are they staring at me because they recognize me? Are they staring at me because they like to go upside my head because I said something about Donald Trump? Are they, like, I, you know, you, I'm going through this mental exercise, just kind of wherever I'm going, just trying to figure out um, just how to act normal. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it, I wouldn't necessarily call it stressful as much as it was just um, surreal. It, it sounds like it was surreal. And I, I, watching it from the outside, I couldn't picture, I, I had only a, a half of, maybe a third of a notion of what that could be like. But yeah, you're walking around security, unable to go to line, man. I mean, I know, obviously, I know your fiance, we worked together at one point in time, and I'm sure that had to be something different for him too. And it's like everybody in your orbit kind of gets affected by this. And you have to be able to try to push through it and hope that you're able to weather the storm, which you did, because now you're you're at the Atlantic now. We all know about what happened with ESPN. I know there's no need to, to rehash that. But I was kind of reading, I read up on some of your other stuff from the Atlantic. And as we talk about this, I was reading about the Dan Levitard thing from a few weeks ago, for example, and how something, and something here that I, as I'm reading it, very clearly, just so I can make sure for the people listening, I understand why sports fans don't want their favorite personalities breaking down the pros and cons of universal health care and tackling immigration reform on SportsCenter. But is condemning racism, even if it means condemning a political figure, really a political issue? Racism is an issue of morality, and it's something commentators can be trusted to see with their own eyes. That Levitard denounced a racist statement shouldn't be upsetting. Now, that makes sense to people like you and me. Because I hear that, and I think the same thing. It's like It's not political to say racism is bad. But there are still there, there's still this whole stick to sports crew. You laid it out there very adeptly in this piece. But for people who still may be on that stick to sports bandwagon, how did how did how should we be able to balance the two? Considering this is a very I, I hate the usage of this word, but a very polarizing time and a polarizing topic. But how do we talk about something that used to be very, pardon the pun, black and white, racism? And how do we talk about it without people getting super bent out of shape? Or maybe we should just go straight at them with it. Um, I, I think it's pretty impossible to talk about it without people feeling defensive because ultimately um, there's a lot of people who feel as if they're being personally attacked um, if, you know, within the conversation, within any conversation about race or, or racism. And I think the tough part is that um, when you're in sports, um, to a lot of people, you are their entertainment. I mean, you are their escape. And I do recognize that and I understand that feeling. And that sense of escapism is probably heightened even more now because, I mean, let's be honest, every five minutes we're being traumatized by this president. I mean, in some kind of way. like it just, Five minutes? Hell, it's like every 30 seconds, depending you know, on the it's, day. It's always something. So there is, you know, there's always some huge um, atrocity, like right around the corner or something that's like happening. And with that being the case, people are clinging more to their escape, um, to whatever their escapes are, probably more so than I've seen at any point in my media uh, media career. I mean, in, in, in regards to sports. But I think what people have to understand is that while there have been advances, the times, you know, are different, technology has made things a lot different, is that they need to remember 
when Muhammad Ali was taking his stance against the Vietnam War, there was a lot of people who had an opportunity to side with him that didn't. And years later, maybe they did. And I don't know if they ever admitted, um, you know, that they didn't at first. I mean, he was very hated. He was very polarizing. And people were both side, both siding that thing to high heaven. And history turned out to be right. And, you know, don't wait until um, history is already decided to decide to have some kind of moral courage about it. The time to have it is now. And so exactly. I say all that to say is that you never could divorce sports from politics. You never could divorce it from racial and social issues. It was just as present. Um, I, I think a lot of people just wanted to believe that sports was somehow different and it never has been that way. Absolutely it may have. Yeah, I mean, it may have led the way in many regards. I mean, if you think about the fact that Jack, Jackie Robinson integrated Major League Baseball in 1947, which was almost 20 years or so before the Civil Rights Act passed, it, it has been in that position before um, and will continue to be in that position because sports is actually one of the few things, if not the only thing, that we all do together is that, you know, we worship separately, we eat with people who look like us, the thing, the thing that forces us to mix is fandom, sports, teams, you know, leagues. Oh, yeah. So um, that should be viewed as a beautiful opportunity as opposed to, um, you know, something else. So I think a lot of times, um, while I understand people's need to escape, there's also another group of people who are just frankly just being totally intellectually dishonest. And it's because it's not that they care that sports or politics are mixed together or that sports and social issues are mixed together. It's just they don't believe in the issue or they disagree with the politics being shown. I mean, look, Tim Tebow, a few years ago, when he was still playing, I mean, he cut a pro-life ad, a Super Bowl ad, with his mother. Yeah. And I actually thought that was quite courageous because, you know, he wants to talk about a thorny issue. Abortion is one. And so, <laughs> and whether you agree with him or not, I mean, the fact is he kind of made his conviction known. And I thought that was pretty powerful, even though I may not agree with his his politics. So, um, you know, I, I, who are we to tell these athletes that they can't leverage their position to speak for something more meaningful to them, especially when you think about the sacrifices that they've made to be a part of that sport? That's part of what they work for is to get to a point where they can start using their platform selfishly um, and we should be encouraging them to use it in a way that they feel like can take advantage of what I was talking about, about the fact that sports brings people together, you know, because it does. Why is it now the time to talk about race? You know, the way people respond to it, sometimes they act as if, you know, LeBron James is dribbling up the court and he gets to half court and just calls a timeout and said, all right, everybody, let's talk about institutional racism. I mean, that's <laughs> not really how that happens. I mean, the ways that they tend to demonstrate and, and speak to these issues it's so minuscule in the grand scheme of things. Like, you know, you, it's not interrupting your fantasy football team. It's not it's not stopping the result of the game. Not it's forcing you, while they have your attention, to, for a few minutes, put something or put something on your mind or leave you with something that maybe after the game that you can think about. And, um, but I find that people aren't really honest about the reasons that they kind of disagree with it. And as we've seen, the stick to sports crowd continues to be out in full force. But unlike in recent years, more and more people are starting to take a stand against that real simple minded line of thinking. And plus, 
as we've seen with Andrew Luck's retirement over the weekend, you have enough idiot fans and idiot commentators who still think these people are just trained monkeys out here to dance for you. But we all know that's not the case. Now, we will take a pause for the cause here for just a second. We need a little bit of a breather. But after the break here, we get into something else we all know you really wanted to talk about. Jamel's piece in The Atlantic about Jay-Z, his partnership with the NFL, the future of Colin Kaepernick, and of course, chicken sandwiches. Because damn it, that's why we're all here, is to talk about Popeyes versus the world. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and this is the 100th episode, episode ASEAN of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back after this. You're listening to the People's Podcast. I'm not going to be responsible for what happens next. This is JSC Radio. Hey now, what's happening? Jay Scott Smith here. And I understand you like JSC Radio. I mean, if you didn't, you wouldn't be listening to me right now. But there's a better way to not only listen to JSC Radio, but to also get paid. You heard me. Get paid to listen to podcasts. Just get the PodCoin app on iPhone or Android. It's free and easy to use. It turns your podcast listening experience into money that can go to charity. Or if you just want to get an Amazon or a Starbucks gift card, just use PodCoin. For every podcast you listen to, you get PodCoin that goes into an account. By the way, the app is free. It goes into an account, and the more you listen, the more PodCoin you get. You can turn those PodCoins into gift cards. Seriously, just go get the PodCoin app, and you can even use the invite code JSC Radio. You'll get 300 PodCoin just for signing up if you use this show's code. Once again, use the invite code JSC Radio to get 300 PodCoin. Give it a try today. Go download the PodCoin app now and enjoy JSC Radio. Man, do I love card night. You ready, boys? You got a king? Go fish that. Oh, come on. <laughs> this is WWE superstar Titus O'Neil. It only takes a moment to make a moment. Take time to be a dad today. Learn more at 877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. You're listening to the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. This is episode 100 of the People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. Welcome back. Jay Scott Smith here. Thank you so much for checking us out. If this is your first time checking out the show and judging from the mentions on social media, for a lot of you, this is your first time here. Welcome. Damn it, welcome. Feel free to go back in the archives and check out the previous 99 episodes plus the specials, and you get to really play catch up and find out what this damn podcast is about. I want to thank you once again for supporting the show, as always, across all the different podcast providers, of course, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio. There's so many of them. Audio Boom. Big up to Audio Boom. And also shout out to Audio Graham. When you check me out on social media, whether it's at J. Scott Smith or at JSC Radio on Twitter and Instagram, you see those really cool little preview nuggets that I gave you guys last week. 
That is a website called Audiogram. Go to getaudiogram.com to check out, if you have a podcast especially, to check out a way, a real easy way to promote your shit through Audiogram. And I also want to remind y'all, this entire interview will be up on the YouTube page. That's bit.ly slash JSCTube. It will be up on the YouTube page by this Thursday. So thank you once again for supporting this show. All you newcomers, all you guys who are checking me out for the first time, I appreciate it. I appreciate all the love that the previews got over the weekend. And clearly, clearly I am grateful for every single one of y'all coming in here. Now, let's get back down to business. We pick things up talking about the state of professional sports when it comes to race. And one of the biggest and baddest names of all of them is Jay-Z. And Jamel wrote about Jay-Z's sudden and rather startling and controversial partnership with the NFL. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and you're listening to the 100th episode of The People's Podcast. This is JSC Radio. We pick up our conversation with the legendary Jamel Hill right now. People who have an issue with Colin Kaepernick and him taking a knee, they don't care much more about the military than they did 10 years ago. Um, they don't and care you about must the- have known. You must know, I was coming to that too. Yeah, was, they, don't, they, don't, they don't care about, um, you know, uh, veterans and the military. And suddenly, you know, they are putting on uh, uh, for the national anthem, all important symbols. And I get it, but the root of that, the root of the disgust aimed at him was never about the flag. I think the root of it was the fact that, you know this as well as I do, whenever there's a case of police brutality, it turns into a both sides thing. And there's a lot of people who are completely okay with unarmed black people getting murdered by the police or getting their ass whipped by the police because it makes them feel safer. And that's the part they don't want to deal with is that, that's the and the function of the police largely for African Americans and 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 black and brown people. That function has been to suppress us. That has been the function. It so, is it is so interesting when you say that. My dad was a cop in Detroit for 33 years. And I always tell this story because I think it's like the funniest, it's one of the funniest moments, but then it got very real very fast. As I come back to their house one day, this is a few years ago, and I find out my dad's been going through my crates of my old hip hop albums because he started listening to them because he he had time. And I come back to their house, and they live in Southfield, just on the other side of Nine Mile. I pull up in their driveway, and my dad is listening to NWA, something, oh, he, would, something he would never let me listen to as a kid. I, there's, a story, there's a funnier story I'll eventually tell you about my first NWA experience. But I pull up, and he's listening to Fuck the Police. And I didn't know what to think, because my dad has never heard or said much about this. And I walked up to him and I said, so you just going to sit here and listen to this? And he's like, I dig the song. This is a 20, at this point, it's like a 25, 26 year old. He's like, I dig the song. He's like, and I said, it's like, you don't feel weird at all. listening to a song, basically dissing you for being a cop. And my dad looks at me just deadpan. And he grew up Southwest Detroit. He was 17 years old when the riots happened. They were not that far away from where he lived. And he, he was one, he went through all sorts of shit with the police department and white officers hazing him and leaving him, leaving him alone at, at during traffic stops and putting sugar in gas tanks. So he looks at me and says with a straight face, he says, look, I was a cop for 33 years. I've been in my whole life. Mm. And he sat back and I said, well, damn. 
well, if we don't do that, you might as well go to the next track on here too. <laughs> and, was, and but but that's that's my my pop is old school Detroit, and I've always thought about that is that when people try to justify cops jumping on us, there there are black officers. I know it's hard to believe for some people. There are black officers who are highly conflicted by this, and they don't believe all this shit, and they see it going on, and they have this weird. Now there's some black officers who are just like, screw it, I'm in on it too, and yeah. still complied, and I'm I'm fearing for my life, and all all this nonsense. I heard a guy on Michael Smirconish's show at my day job, Michael Smirconish's show, trying to justify Eric Garner getting killed, saying, well, he's selling loose cigarettes, but it was tax revenue, and he was stealing from the taxpayers. Like the mental gymnastics that are used to express and explain away why we should be just cool with this, the other side of an argument, the wrong side of the argument. And for Colin Kaepernick to effectively sacrifice his career, because this is the, and this is the latest piece for The Atlantic that has gotten a whole lot of people hot and bothered about Jay-Z, is what Kaepernick did, he effectively sacrificed his career. He was just like Muhammad Ali when he gets stripped of the title or John, John Carlos and Tommy Smith and Jesse Owens and, and all these. Th- he's one of those figures now. But with this thing with Jay-Z, it's so thorny. And I think you handled it perfectly in the piece that you wrote. I know people don't like to read past the headlines, but the piece that you wrote lays out it's it's not as it's not as simple as just saying he's a sellout. You, and you even said he's not a sellout. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. I know this is uh, a word that is often lost and drowned out in um, in at times like this in particular, where there's a lot of conversations, a lot of opinions flying around, but it it really is a nuanced issue. And yeah, I mean, it's a very nuanced issue because you're talking about uh, Colin Kaepernick, somebody very well respected, obviously, um, by a lot of people, but in particular in the black community. Uh, and Jay-Z, somebody who has um, has an enormous amount of credibility, cachet, um, and commitment to our community. And so it's not quite, it's funny because like I, I understand, you know, some people are like maybe a Malcolm Martin, but it, like the philosophies are even closer. Like Malcolm and Martin, you know, you talk about different religions, like there was a lot of, uh, at least in the beginning, you know, kind of as they both were rising to prominent prominence in the movement. I mean, there were, there are, you know, a lot of differences because, you know, as you, as everybody knows, Martin Luther King Jr. was all about nonviolent, peaceful protests. Malcolm X was like, I'm about picking that gap up and protecting yourself. So, <laughs> By any know, means necessary. That wasn't just a tagline. No, it wasn't. That was like his way of life. And so they were very different in a lot of um, philosophical and ideological ways. Jay-Z and Colin Kaepernick are not that different. Um, but the difference is method and what we see. And, and this is this is something that black people have been, as we've tried to fight for advancement, have been dealing with for a really long time is, is it better, particularly as we have been able to gain more wealth, um, you know, or some of us have been able to gain more wealth and more prominence, um, you know, within uh, certain structures is that, is it better to work from within and try to change the culture and the system or is the only thing that's effective is doing what Colin Kaepernick do, it, uh, did and applying pressure from the outside um, and a more forceful um, anti-cooperative uh, way of doing things. Um, and so, I, 
that part of it was on display. But I think for me, I mean, the, the, the crux of what I come back to is that as much respect as I have for Jay-Z and what he's done with not just his career, but his life and how he's risen to be and become one of the most successful men in America, not just a hip hop artist, is that I just felt as if um, he kind of forgot what the real fight was about. And I've heard a lot of people say, well, Jay-Z's trying to affect change. Well, he was already doing that. He didn't need the NFL to do that. I mean, he has been a part of many social justice causes. Everybody's seen the headline about how him and Beyonce provided bail money um, for the protesters uh, in Louisiana, I think it was, about, you know, how they've come to the aid of so many people. He's had a docu-series about Trayvon Martin, uh, another documentary about what Meek Mill went through in the and the uh, criminal justice system, Khalif Browder, like he's been on the forefront of this work for a while. The NFL needed him for credibility in this area, not the other way around. So that's like one thing that you're just giving them, which is you're lending an organization who does not deserve to have any level of credibility or any um, that only deserves to be doubted in this particular area. Um, you're giving them something that is really precious. And that's your relationship with your community, which you have to come back to. And they're not worth it. They have not proven to be because of the way they treated Colin Kaepernick. And my thing is like, you know, to the people who are just saying like, well, Jay-Z, you know, he can affect change in the NFL. How? He's not an owner. Okay. These are 32 individual billionaires who don't like to be told what to do. And unless... (laughs) You know, unless he has some some other big joker that we don't know about, which it doesn't appear that he does, he's not going to tell Jerry Jones that um, he's wrong or he needs to change his attitude that he would he would cut a player that knelt. You know, Jerry, the NFL has a policy that will find players if they kneel for the anthem, find players and teams. Jay-Z ain't changing that. Okay. Nope. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Jay-Z is also not going to be able to change the fact that there is a glass ceiling for black GMs. There's not enough black GMs for one. Nope. Nope. No black owners. So he's not changing any of that. It's the NFL structure that needs to be challenged. See, when Colin Kaepernick took a knee, he wasn't taking a knee so that the NFL could fix police brutality. He was taking a knee so that those of us watching football, uh, we become more aware of the injustices that black and brown people face in the criminal justice system. He was tired and upset by what he was seeing happening both in San Francisco and across the country. And he wanted people to take notice. He's always taken action simultaneously with his protests. So this idea that all he was doing was kneeling is just wrong. I mean, he was, that was never, never the case with him at all. And he made that and clear from the beginning, too. And from, people from forget the that. Very beginning. They it was right after the game. He said it multiple times, what, what this was about. And even to veterans in particular, and people serving and people who had served, he said that he didn't feel like America was holding up its bargain in terms of what they were really fighting for. So it was really out of respect to them as well. So with all that you know, being said... Um, the the NFL is being involved in social justice uh, campaigns now, not because they suddenly saw the light, because it, they're using it as cover to suppress the voices of the players who want to speak out about it and use their platform 
to make people more aware. They don't want any protest on the field. They don't want players talking about police brutality and Colin Kaepernick after the games or during, you know, media times. They want all of that to be pushed aside. And that's why they keep throwing money at it when they could have saved themselves a whole lot of money and a whole lot of bad headlines and bad publicity had they just done one simple thing, which is giving Colin Kaepernick a job. All this would have been not even happened. Do you think he ever plays in the league again? I'm almost convinced that there's no, unfortunately, there's no chance he's getting back in. I mean, zero. I mean, the thing is, I mean, the day I effectively knew that he would never play again, and keep in mind, when I knew this, to, or I felt like this would be true, I then only thought it was about a 10% chance he would play again. It became less than zero. Trump started as a talking point in his rallies. That's when I was, he's never playing again. Um, given the relationships that the owners have, not only with Donald Trump and just their fear of Donald Trump and fear of the backlash that his supporters can create, even though ain't none of them turning the game off. I don't care what they say. Um, the reality is that the NFL, um, and, and this is not something that they had to meet about, as the old adage goes, what's understood need not be said. It was understood that Colin Kaepernick is not to play again because he can't handle the pressure. Colin Kaepernick signed with a team tomorrow. Donald Trump is going to talk about that for three weeks, if not longer. It's going to become a talking point for him to win a re-election. And that's just one of a long list of reasons why the NFL, they don't want him back in the league. And even though they probably never expected that his collusion case would be as far as it did before they eventually settled out of court, the NFL was happy to write that check to Colin Kaepernick. Happy to write. Because they figured um, that would be it. They figured that would be it, and they knew no owner was going to sign him because no over owner was courageous enough to withstand the back and withstand um, the messiness of, of what that would entail. No it, owner, which says about them. And it's mind-blowing, because I see the mental gymnastics used to try to explain why he's not there. Yet I just saw the Eagles bring Josh McCown out of retirement to play for them instead of him. To see the Detroit Lions go get Tom Savage and Josh Johnson and all these other these other dudes. Nathan Peterman is still getting a paycheck in the NFL. And Colin Kaepernick is out here and perfectly capable of playing, even being out. In fact, he might be in at least a little bit better mental condition after not having been there for two years. And they, they, he's, he's done. And, and it's kind of sad, but it's so baldly out there that they create all this, well, we're not sure if it's our system and what well, we consider everybody. That's bullshit. You don't. Because if you do, you assigned him or at least brought him in for a workout. He can't even yeah. get a workout. No, he can't even get a workout. Um, no team offered him anything. And so, you know, conveniently, I've seen so much misinformation about people like, oh, he wanted to be paid like a starter. Colin Kaepernick's team has never said anything about that. Or he would he would have cost too much money, and um, you know I love the people who then switch it from oh he's too big of a distraction. Okay, so then you're admitting to me this wasn't a football decision because they go hard in the paint and try to convince you it was a football decision, and then they move to the distraction card. And I'm like, well, which is it? Is it a football decision or is it not? Because if it's a football decision, 
you admit that he's better than all these other guys that have gotten opportunities in the league and that he would make a team that at the very least needed a, a, a quality experience backup. And oh, by the way, one who was a pass away from winning a Super Bowl, you admit that he could help a team, but suddenly <laughs> it's like, he's too big of a distraction. It's like, well, then it's not a football decision. So therefore it's all bullshit. If you put in a Colin Kaepernick gif on Twitter, You'll see a myriad of the different crazy runs, crazy plays. The the play he had in Green Bay where he ran through all 12 defenders or or all the scores in San Francisco. But someone's going to sit there with a straight face and tell me Dan Orlovsky is a better option than Colin Kaepernick. It's it's insane. And what's the when and I and I'm not sure how much time you have left. And I know you're crazy busy. I got to ask two last things. You now deal more with politics. Obviously, at the Atlantic, you know, politics, your sports, your culture. I've told my students, if you can cover sports, you can cover anything. What has been the biggest difference and similarity between covering sports and covering politics and other things outside of the sports window? The difference is not necessarily the what. The difference is the where. And um, although structurally politics is set up much differently, just in the sense that yeah, you cover LeBron James. After every game, he's got to talk. <laughs> so you have to just, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, yeah, you know, if Elizabeth Warren gives a speech somewhere, that doesn't mean you get five minutes with Elizabeth Warren. You hope you do, but, like, you know, it's not a guarantee. And even um, when you look at this presidential administration and the reporters covering that, I mean, they may – they don't have press briefings for months at a time. So, um, <laughs> so it's – the access points are a lot different depending on, of course, you know, what level of, of government or politics that you're covering. But as I said, the difference is really the where, because, you know, leaving ESPN, which um, has, you know, obviously made it clear about how they want to cover um, sports and politics, which is if it's newsworthy and then they kind of want to leave it alone um, to a large degree, even when it is newsworthy, is that there's still a lot of landmines uh, they feel like are there, and and that um, you know that I I, I think uh, people I know I that I think I know people I know that work there are still struggling to kind of navigate, so they're not comfortable embracing this mixture and this clash that often happens. On the other side, the Atlantic, um, and it helps too that they're also not in partnership or a financial partnership with anybody that they cover. It's not like, you know, the Atlantic is covering the White House, but also putting on the White House television show on its network. (laughs) They don't have an office in Trump Tower or anything of that. No, no. I mean, it's like, you know, unfortunately, ESPN is very difficult because, you know, the the NFL is a partner. The NBA is a partner, you know, so um, there's a, a transaction and a obligation financially that's there. And so they can journalism up to a point, but then they also have to protect their business relationship because that's just the way it works. Um, the Atlantic is not like that. And so, um, they can dig down there. I can dig down into some things that I couldn't dig down into before. Um, and well, I was coming, Mostly, I was coming freshly off of TV. I mean, for the most part, other than the, the months that I spent at the Undefeated, uh, TV is a much different culture than, as you know, writing is, and especially writing at a place like the Atlantic. Um, a lot of my bosses at the Atlantic have covered the White House. They've covered politics. They have been reporters. Um, they're, you know, so they kind of understand what we do and the kind of journalism that it takes 
to create the kind of product that they do. When you're in television, um, you may be on shows where you, every producer there is like between 25 and 28 and none of them have ever covered sports. Um, never been in a locker room. Um, don't understand the dynamic um, that's there between sports journalists and and uh, athletes. Um, in some cases uh, at ESPN, but it's not unique or germane to ESPN by any stretch. Uh, you know, you have producers or people um, that are decision makers who are much more concerned about protecting the relationship with the athlete as opposed to, you know, doing some real journalism. Access, so, access yeah, to something else. Yeah, yeah and, that, and that is not to say in print that's perfect either because, I mean, it's a daily trade uh, because that's part of the job. It's just, you know, when you're when you're dependent on a subject or a league or, um, uh, you know, a, a, a political entity for access, there's going to be some trade-offs. It's just that you hope you're not the one giving up the things that don't allow you to do your job in a credible way. So, um, so yeah, for me, it wasn't, it's not so much the subject matter um, because I was always deeply interested in politics. That doesn't make me an expert. It just, you know, makes me somebody who was just that. And I could always see, the tentacles and the connective tissue between sports and politics and sports and social issues. So it's made it a lot easier to discuss those things openly. And Oh, by the way, to take those conversations and just generally talk about, you know, politics. I mean, when I wrote the column for the Atlantic about the Obamas and that moment where they had to, um, you know, at George HW Bush's funeral and they had to greet the Trumps and, um, they did, you know, they, the Obamas did what they do, which is, you know, they, of course, they were gracious and respectful. Meanwhile, Hillary was like, I ain't even looking over there. Like, you know, <laughs> she wasn't even, she wasn't trying to be nice. Like that she was wasn't not, with it. She <laughs> wasn't with it. She was just like, so after all, after that lock her up shit, here's what I got for you. Not in the low. So, um, but the Obamas, you know, I, when you're the first black family in the White House, um, presidential family, you have a different responsibility. You're looked at differently. You have more at stake. Um, and you're judged differently too. And that was very, that was kind of depressing because I thought in that moment, given how Donald Trump essentially became president, the, one of the foundational reasons was because of the racist birtherism theory and the things that he said about Obama and the things that um, he said about their, you know, their family overall that had Michelle's, you know, been like, fuck you. She'd have had every right to do that. Right. But absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't have blamed him at all if they, if they told him no, to go sit and spin. They didn't owe him anything. And but the whole point is that because of, you know, you're often in that position just as a black person, we can all relate to that, is that we often are forced in positions or asked to look um, and be more benevolent to people who really don't fuck with us. And we're, you know, it's it's been, especially particularly the conversations about race and racism, is that, you know, we are put in the awful position of having to be the peaceful ones, the benevolent ones. And when we're not that way, it's somehow a bad reflection of us and not on the racist, which is amazing to me. So they get a pass and they get to behave however they want and they get to be as racist as they want. Meanwhile, we got to sit there and just uh, take it or, um, you know, sit there and and use kindness to absolve them, which is crazy to me. So 
that's to me, I mean, granted, that's not related to sports. It's generally just in politics, but it's also to me very relatable to the black experience um, or to the minority existence in this country. And so what I love about being at the Atlantic, I am oftentimes able to channel and to integrate all three, all three sports, politics, you know, the black experience. And kind of that was the case with the Jay-Z Colin Kaepernick uh, column as well. Always having to be the bigger person is mm -hmm. is the toughest possible thing. As much as I love Michelle Obama, the day she said, when they go low, we go high, it kind of made me cringe because of the being the bigger person thing. It's like, I get what you're saying, but damn, come on, because it burns you inside to see it. It burned the hell out of me. There's this picture not long after the election in 16 of Trump sitting next to Obama and look on Obama's face when he has to shake his hand. That just cut me like a knife seeing that. So when I, and I, when you mentioned that, it's, it, it's, it, it sticks, it sticks deep and it is a part of the black experience for, for as much as we don't want it to be at times. Yeah. So I mean, we're stuck with it. We're stuck with it. And I mean, I think that the worst part about any level of, of racial or, um, you know, racial injustice, you know, misogyny, homophobia, any of those things. The worst part about it is that the people most victimized and oppressed by it, the people who have to withstand it and um, who are subjected to it are the people who are then charged with the responsibility of solving it. And um, I just find that to be one of the most unfair, if not the most unfair thing about that entire conversation is we not only have to deal with the trauma of of racism um, as as victims, as oppressed people, as um, you know, people who are subjected to this in 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 small and big ways. But then they come to us and ask us for solutions and put us on diversity panels and ask <laughs> that ask us how we how they can be better. As if I created this shit. Like you figure out that <laughs> on your own time. Okay. They put one of us on a diversity panel. Yes, <laughs> they don't right. put five if they put yes. one of us on a diversity panel. Oh, I mean, every every you know black person in America, I don't care if you took out trash for a living or a CEO or a supervisor, whatever it is, we have all been in that in that room, in that meeting, where we're the only black uh, person in, in the meeting and something has happened uh, and they all looking at you to speak for all black people. And it's just like, why why is this my problem? Cause you fucked up. Like that ain't my problem. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? If something oh, goes, guess. you know what I'm saying? If something goes wrong and you got an HR issue, suddenly uh y'all want me to uh to be Tanahasi Coates up in here. Okay. I don't think so. <laughs> As someone who has had to be that when the problem with me is I don't I don't exactly, I'm not the most corporately <laughs> easy to deal with. I say I say things that probably aren't very pleasant. And that's that's something for that's something for another discussion altogether. We we got one last thing here, and it's maybe the most pressing question I've wanted to ask you: Is it Popeyes or is it Chick Fil A or is it Wendy's? Because I've seen okay. you ride for Wendy's too. So um, full disclosure: I have not had uh, I've not had the the, the Popeyes uh, chicken sandwich yet, but um, in part because uh, during the week I tried to eat somewhat cleanly. Um, and just reserve all my ratchetness for the weekend. But, um, <laughs> and the other thing too, is like just seeing videos and commentary from social media is like, you gotta be strategic when you go. Cause yeah. they run out of the sandwich quick every day, right? It, I, so, I'm, in, I'm in Philly and at least three of the spots in Philly are usually done by 
five, six o'clock. I got lucky the other day and got one at 4.30 before I went into my other job. But yeah, they got the signs up saying, we, we ain't got it right, right now. So my plan is like this Sunday at like, I'm gonna pick a very, um, I'm gonna pick a very odd time at like 9, 18 a.m. I'm gonna go and try to get me, cause it's a 24 hour Popeyes that's, that's pretty close to me. So I'm gonna try to go get one in. But that being said, excluding Popeyes from this conversation, I, I have been saying, I have been on the record about this. And look, don't at me, don't debate me, you know, debate your silly grandpa uh, in his pampers, okay? <laughs> Wendy's spicy chicken sandwich is better than Chick-fil-A's. At best, Chick-fil-A is third in this conversation, all right? Oh, wow. I, at best, I was like, Wendy's, I put it I put it on everything, on everything I love. And you know when black people say that, we serious. Oh, everything mama. I love on my mama. <laughs> <laughs> Wendy's spicy chicken fillets or a spicy chicken sandwich is better than Chick-fil-A. Another one. See, even though I know Bojangles kind of got run up out of this argument. Yeah. See, the argument wasn't about like Bojangles regular chicken sandwich. What Bojangles needed to take uh, to post a picture of instead of that, you know, dry uh, <laughs> post reconstruction ass sandwich that they uh, put out there on social media they needed to tweet a picture of the Cajun filet chicken biscuit sandwich. Man, listen. That fight, then, <laughs> then, then you have, then we can have this conversation, is what you're saying. Put that up there, and now Put you're back in the club. See, they they came to, you know, they came to the OK Corral with some rocks. Like the heavy, <laughs> the heavy artillery is that Cajun chicken filet sandwich. I had one at the Atlanta. My first one I had was at the Atlanta airport. Um, this was like a couple years ago. And I I then knew, like, if Jesus was a taste, I knew what it was. Because <laughs> I'm if, you could put, if you could put Jesus in a sandwich, infuse Jesus in a sandwich, it was that damn chicken. It was that Cajun chicken filet, uh, that Cajun uh, chicken biscuit uh, from Bojangles. It was, it was all my life. All my life got gathered in two bites. All my life. Everything. So... It was everything. And so that's sort of my my, my rankings of chicken um, at this point. It's really bad for Chick-fil-A that Popeye's has made this surge because as it was, there was a lot of us that were trying to, um, as he called it, trying to, uh, we had to kind of have a certain mentality or we had to really reconcile with some things because it's some problematic ass chicken because of who owns Chick-fil-A. <laughs> so every day we go in there like, okay, or whenever we go to Chick-fil-A, it's just like, damn. I mean, even though I can like taste the racism, the reality is just like, <laughs> You can just feel the right, homophobia and, and the, the homophobia, I was like, oh, even though I know it's strong, it's like, but damn it, them chicken tenders is good as hell. <laughs> so, you know, it was a lot of us that was having to, you know, go through mental issues as we go into Chick-fil-A and, and you know, with their excellent service and happy smiles, but also, you know, some of the worst people ever in terms of who owns them. <laughs> so it's just like, but now we'll have to make that choice because we know what Popeye's is about, you know. Popeye's is a pillar Sunday. in our community. And it's open on Sunday. See, they, I'm just, See. look. This is this is this is Popeye's moment, and I'm I just want to be able to one day, you know, tell the young folks who will not have experienced these great this great uh, chicken sandwich <laughs> war that I was there. I was there when Popeye's officially became the number one chicken source in America. And it's it's absolutely incredible, Jamel. 
please put over what it is that you're doing. I know you've got podcasts. You've got so much happening. I'm going to let you promote everything because I can't do it no justice. <laughs> well, that's probably, you got three jobs. I feel like I got 672 jobs, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I'm, as you mentioned, I'm, we've been talked about in this podcast, writing for the Atlantic. So you can definitely check out um, some of that work there on the Um Also have a, a twice weekly podcast on Spotify, download, subscribe, it's free. Got to say this because it's a lot of, you know, mm-hmm. um, the, the Apple folks is like, I come, I can't get it on Apple. Well, Apple didn't write me the check. Spotify did. Sorry. There you go. Neither did title. Sorry. Cut the, That's how cut the check. Cut the check, Apple. Cut the check. That's See, all I'm you got to do. <laughs> so Spotify paid for this exclusivity. So that's where you can ex- exclusively get it on Spotify. So <laughs> twice a week. Um, like to have a lot of fun, have had a lot of great and amazing guests. Um, uh, as of the taping of your podcast, it's a Wednesday tomorrow, a new episode drops, uh, with Robin Thede, the creator and star of a black lady sketch show on, um, HBO. So, uh, hopefully you'll get a chance to check that out. Um, but yeah, I've had a lot of amazing, amazing guests, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, Black Thought, you know, I just kind of, um, kind of jump across the landscape between entertainment, music, sports culture so um that's been a really fun outlet to me uh outlet for me and um as i mentioned you know working on the the memoir as well have a production company with another fellow detroiter kelly carter another fellow michigan stater mm-hmm. um, I, so, I, I know i know miss kelly the shout out shout out to kelly carter yeah so we have some very exciting um projects that we're working on including a a comedy series we're developing with Sony and Gabrielle Union. So we're super excited about that. So just a lot of different things going on. But um, yeah, I mean, I appreciate uh, people like yourself who been a day one and been and riding through me through the moments when the whole world was telling y'all I wasn't shit, I'm sure. So I, <laughs> I appreciate uh, the fact that, uh, you know, um, you still hung in there and supported me as well as, you know, uh, the city of Detroit itself. I mean, um, you know, when I go back there, the amount of love that I feel from folks is is tremendous. You know, um, uh, what Jay-Z and Beyonce say, I'm good on any MLK Boulevard. Man, I'm good on Six Mile, Seven Mile, Eight Mile, Schaefer, Linwood, Schoolcraft, Schoolcraft, <laughs> you know, Eileen. You know, I'm like, <laughs> oh, you, 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 you good on both Mac and B-Wick. I know. I'm, I'm, you I'm, know what I'm saying? Uh, we See, the thing is, Jamel, I... I consider myself fortunate enough to consider you a friend because that's what you are. And you're always going to be good with me. Whether you did this or not for me, you were always going to be good with me. But I will say personally, I I take such great pride in what you've done and what you've been able to do. And to know that anybody who thinks you ain't shit, fuck them. Yeah. <laughs> Point blank. I, I'll it. say it. I'm going <laughs> to say it. I'm, I'm putting it out there because you've been you've always been good to me and I always judge people on how they treat others. And you've always been good to everybody when they have deserved it. And that's that's the main thing. So I'm always going to ride with it. She's you know what she is on Twitter. She's Jamel Hill on Twitter. I, you're like the the one name. I, nobody has to say what your name is on Twitter because everybody. <laughs> well, and then I also consistently have the same name on all my social media platforms. So it's not like you go to Facebook and it's, uh, you know, Jamel keeping it real all the time. Hill, like it's, <laughs> it's oh, my God. No, you're um, you're everywhere. And I appreciate you having you on or you coming on 
this momentous 100th episode of my podcast, JSC Radio. You were listed as like one of the three people I would love to have on here. And, I, and I'm, I'm through the roof that you've done this. Obviously, if I'm ever able to do anything for you, I'd be happy to come on your podcast when I'm finally important enough to do so. So <laughs> I'm, Stop it. I'm, I'm working on getting there myself. But Jamel Hill, thank you so damn much for coming on JSC Radio with me. I, I appreciate that. Anytime, fam. And there you have it. That, my friends, was probably one of the coolest damn things I've done in this business. And I've been in this business 15 years. Because a lot of you guys are just hearing this podcast for the first time. And I can't stress this enough. Welcome. Thank you. I don't give a damn if you jump on now, if you jumped on in episode one, if you jumped on in episode 37. I don't care. As long as your ass is here. That's all that matters to me. Go back and listen to the previous ones and you'll get more of a feel for this thing and see where it's evolved and you'll learn more about me. But I've been in this business for what will be 15 years coming up in January. And to have been able to have organically built this podcast from nothing to get to 100 episodes to where I've had a litany of awesome guests, Jamel just being maybe the biggest name of all of them. But I also want to thank Janae Darden. That way the hell back in episode 13 in 2016. She was my first guest. I want to thank Lara Witt and Adrian Lawrence. I want to thank the first two-time guest, Jasmine Duke. The second time she came in here was with her father, Aaron Duke. That's episode 61.5. You want to go check that one out. That was a really great conversation we had. I want to thank Renee Washington from episode 57. I want to shout out the, the maybe the two coolest guests I ever got because it was as raw and as real as it gets about race. I want to thank Michelle Sahin and Melissa DePino from episode 80. I want to big up Brittany Noble from episode 85, which was at the time the single most downloaded episode of this episode of this podcast. I can't even speak straight of this podcast ever. I want to thank Marion E. Brooks, who came in in episode 89. I want to thank Dr. Jennifer Caudill from episode 90. I want to big up Bubba Wallace, NASCAR's Bubba Wallace, who talked to me in episode 94. And of course, where would I be without my most recent guests, Josh David and Jasmine Washington from Ebony Magazine. By the way, Ebony still hasn't paid them. So just remember, Ebony still effing owes. Pay what you owe, Ebony Magazine. And then, of course, we have Jamel Hill. But this podcast began as me basically trying to find a new outlet back in 2016. It's vacillated between being a sports show, being a commentary show. Maybe my most controversial episode was episode 23, which came the day after the presidential election in 2016. You can only imagine how that one sounded. Go back into the archives and listen to that. But um, this has been a hell of a ride to get to 100. Through everything I've been through, through everything I've done, through everything I've talked about and lived through, to have been able to get to 100 episodes of anything is outstanding. But I don't do that without people. Mm, excuse me. Got a little choked up there. I, I don't do that without people like you who are listening right now. Whether this is the first time you've heard me or the 10,000th time you've heard me, I thank you and I'm grateful for you. And here's hoping that if this is your first time listening, this ain't your last time listening. Hit that subscribe button. Get your ass in there and give me a review if you're listening to this thing on iTunes. Give me my five stars, damn it. 
I'm trying out here. I'm not doing this from some high-profile studio. I don't have expensive equipment. I don't have an engineer, and I don't have a major company bankrolling my black ass. I'm literally recording this into a microphone plugged into a digital recorder because my normal board, which I would have up, is inoperable because when I came back from Miami, by the way, episode 102 will have a guest that I interviewed down in Miami. But when I came back from Miami, TSA decided they wanted to break my adapter while they were going through my bag. So it's been a little difficult trying to get this thing together, but damn it, we're making this thing happen. So I'm not out here with some major bankroll, major company pushing my, my thing out there, pushing my shit out there and getting me over. This is basically from the ground up, built from nothing. Every bit of equipment I have, I've paid for, or I've borrowed, or I've gotten for free, or I picked up from somebody who didn't need it. And I've been recording and doing all this work, and the fact that you guys dig it, and you're shouting out the show, and I'm getting all this sudden love on the internet. (laughs) The internets have been great to me, but... I appreciate so much of the support from so many of you guys. And I guess I should give you one more word on the type of person Jamel Hill is. Jamel Hill is one of the best human beings I know. And anybody who dares to say otherwise has shit for brains. Jamel Hill is one of the best people I know, one of the best human beings I know. She didn't have to do this show with me. She didn't have to do that interview with me. She gave me an hour of her time. When she's got, as you heard during the interview, she got more shit to do than there is shit to do. She gave me an hour of her time when she didn't have to. I'm some dude with a podcast that is still growing even at 100 episodes. But we've known each other for a long time. She did this for me. And when we were sitting in that VIP, Mild Flex, down in Miami, to just see how she interacted with everybody, every single person that came up to her, Wanted to shake her hand, wanted to show her love, wanted to get a picture with her. And she stopped and took time and talked to every single one of them without fail. It was it was astonishing because someone in her position, she could easily just be like, I made it F you. But she didn't. And she's not. That's not who she is. And those of you who try to make up your own little notions and preconceived ideas of the type of person she is, all you can basically go go dunk your head in a bowl full of water. She is as genuine and as real as it gets. And I'm not just saying that because she did this podcast because I've put her over long before she came on here. She's great people, and she's few people are better representative of what my city, sorry, Philly, but what my city, Detroit, is about than Jamel Hill. And I couldn't be more proud of what she's accomplished and more importantly I couldn't be happier to call myself a friend of hers because she good she's good she's good people and for her to do this for me is effing wonderful and I want to thank her again for that and hell we're also keeping it real just for her retweeting a couple of things about this show has got my damn mentions basically on smash. I'm looking around at my mentions like, damn, I didn't order enough food apparently because y'all are coming in there. And you're coming with positivity, by the way. I really appreciate that. Be sure to bring that same positivity to the YouTube page when this entire interview goes up later on this week because you guys are dope. I want to thank y'all. And before I go, I had a nice little intro planned for this show. 
But obviously, circumstances change things. So on the way out the door, I'm going to give all of y'all, whether you've listened to this show from the very beginning or your ass is brand new, I'm going to give y'all a little bit of a retrospective. I would need probably an hour to do a retrospective on this entire podcast, but I'm giving you a retrospective of the first 100 episodes of The People's Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, this is JSC Radio. Welcome to the party. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, how's it going? In case you uh, didn't realize or didn't know who I am, my name is J. Scott Smith, and this is JSC Radio. Flint's water crisis exposed the city's nearly 100,000 residents to lead poisoning, and it was brought about by a malignant combination of arrogance, apathy, negligence, and incompetence by the administration of Michigan Governor Rick Snyder. Our existence here is different. And that's some of the things that I instilled in Jasmine. And I always told her, you know, you have to fight for what you want. And you have to put, you have to do, be five times better. Um, and it's and it's not because you are in any way um, less than someone else. It's because we live in a world that requires that of you because you're black. We have to have women who are allowed to have their own unique individual sexuality that is not disrespected. We don't have respect or things taken from us because we are our own individual sexual beings. And I think on on the surface when I say stuff like that, it just sounds like, you know, I want to suck all the dick I want and don't want anybody to talk to me about it, right? <laughs> the most difficult part for me has been hearing I'm not good enough because it's not something that I've, I've ever settled for. I mean, in soccer, it was the same thing. I was told I was too skinny, I was too tall. I played for my dad growing up, and everyone used to say, you're not good enough, you're only getting by because your dad coached you. And I was determined to prove that I was good enough. When I got, at each level I got to, I was determined to get to the next one. And I've never settled, and it's been the same thing with my career. What is something that you wish you could do over? Is there is there something that maybe you're saying, hey, it turned out really well, but it could have been better. Or did you? is there something you maybe missed on that you thought you could improve on? And kind of looking, being a little self-reflective in everything that you've done. Uh, so for me, it would be with my children. So I raised my daughter and my three nieces. And I think I could have been a better father at times. I think I could have been more focused. Wow. Because uh, I wasn't always present because I was trying, I was running from poverty. I didn't get a place to pump milk for my son. You know, I didn't get a, a place to literally this is oh, no. this is like basic. Crazy. This is crazy. This I is got crazy. an email saying that they would allow me the storage closet during normal business hours, and you and I both know that I don't work during normal business hours. So I was just about to say that you can't go to like Navient and Donut or any of the loan providers and be like, "Hey, I have an IOU from Evan Magazine." Like that's not gonna work. You can't right. go to your landlord and say like, "Hey, I have an IOU from Evan Magazine." Like, no, we all have bills. Yeah. Life doesn't stop. And I think that's my biggest gripe, that it's just a lack of concern for our well-being. Like, what are we supposed to do? We worked hard for all of this. There is nothing worse as a physician than seeing a patient develop breast cancer because they didn't get mammograms, or see them get colon cancer because they didn't get colonoscopies, or see them have a foot amputated or have them go into kidney failure because they never got treated for their diabetes. There is no reason for that. So whatever issues you have, what I say is, I respect them and I hear them. What we have to do is find the right situation for you. The Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan. 
endorsed this man multiple times. They were doing robocalls for him in the South. But you're going to sit here and tell me that just because I support Trump doesn't make me racist. Yes, it does. The MAGA people are not exactly the the, uh, the easiest to deal with. Fuck the MAGA people. <laughs> that is definitely going to be in the promo. I don't care how good his music is. Music doesn't give you a free pass to abuse a young black girl. Because unfortunately, as we have found out, they are the group of people that no matter what they do, no one takes their concerns seriously, nobody believes in them, and nobody really wants to have their damn back. And we owe that to the next generation of young black women to stand up for them instead of victim blaming and shaming them and trying to find loopholes to let someone get away with abusing them and mistreating them. I want them to demand more. Stop giving me this, oh, well, we used to be bad, so but nine and seven is so much better. How come you just can't be positive? How come you just can't hope? As I said in the first segment, and as I will close this show now, hope is not a goddamn strategy. JSC Radio, I'm not going to make any grandiose proclamations. I'm not going to say JSC Radio is a movement. Not yet. JSC Radio isn't a revolution. It's not going to change the game. It's not going to make podcasting great again, brother. It's primarily me getting on here and just talking to you. I don't do interviews. I have conversations. And this is my chance to have a bunch of really fun conversations with you guys. And whether it's one person listening or 5,000 people listening... I appreciate whatever I get. Thank you so much for supporting the first 100 episodes. Now let's go get 100 more. My name is Jay Scott Smith, and I'm telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. Always have your pets spayed or neutered. And we are out of here. Until next time for episode 101, goodbye, everybody. You're listening to the People's Podcast. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. This is JSC Radio. I heard on the news about that five-year-old who found his uncle's gun. The kid didn't know it was loaded. I heard on the news about that 14-year-old girl who was bullied online for like a year. She couldn't take it anymore, so she got her dad's gun from his nightstand. I heard on the news about that guy who broke into someone's house, stole a gun from the hall closet. He accidentally shot his cousin in the head. She killed herself. And later, killed the owner of the store he was trying to rob. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council.